as everybody is aware, we are joined today by Kevin Smith, President and CEO for the University Health Network. I'm Matthew Hart, CEO for Longwoods. First time I met Kevin was back in his Hamilton days. And right after my initial introduction, I became a fan. And to this day, I continue to follow his career and watch with interest. I'm excited that he's joining us today. Uh, so please join me in welcoming Dr. Kevin Smith. Kevin, the show is yours. Thanks, Matthew. A pleasure to be here with you all today and uh, look forward to chatting with you, sharing our experience, particularly coming out of two years plus of, uh, of COVID. Just before I do, I want to recognize and thank my colleagues at UHN who've helped me prepare for today, Ryan Maloney and uh, Joel Montesanti and Grace Ivo. Uh, thanks to my colleagues for that. And as we get started, in addition to uh, your sponsors today, I, I want to also thank um, all, all of the folks who've been on, who are on this call. All of you have been uh, working really hard during one of, of healthcare's most challenging times, and um, gratitude abundant to you all. I think we've never seen the system be more like a system, and so really want to uh, want to say thank you. Um, have often heard in the political realm, never let a good crisis go to waste. So while I want to talk about some of the really challenging parts of the last two years, I also want to talk about some of the things we learned about our own resiliency and opportunities for improving the healthcare system. So this is the obligatory brag about UHN slide, and I won't do that today, but it's an amazing place, as all of you know. It's uh, really done well. Um, when, when somebody like Newsweek says you're at the top, one of the top four hospitals in the world, the criteria are perfect. And when the, the Newsweek will say we're not the top four hospitals in the world, the criteria are deeply flawed. But uh, suffice to say, we're very lucky uh, to be in among a, a elite group of hospitals, as are our cast and partners. Um, really very proud in the last number of years. We've put a lot of energy into really growing our research, innovation, and commercialization, which obviously flows right back into funding scholarship, funding innovation. And very proud to uh, increasingly be recognized for something I hope we're all working on, and that is the greening of hospitals, which are very large carbon footprints. So um, looking back, I'm trying, in preparing for this after Matthew chatted with me, I was thinking a bit about um, what did we feel in those first days? And I think all of us um, were concerned as were our frontline staff, how, how dangerous is this disease? And remember, it was pretty scary when we saw what was happening in Asia and Europe and even New York City. Um, we saw radical numbers of people requiring massive interventions and, and capacity greatly diminished based on ICU needs. Where is the disease going to take us, which we ask in every pandemic? Again, uh, no clear answers. How will the system and people function with a new serious disease? This was, I think, especially challenging in a place like Canada or Ontario where we know that our system is not overbuilt, that we were regularly operating above 100% occupancy already. And uh, we did not have an overabundance of staff. I think all of us would have said, we always have nursing shortages and other, other health professions. At UHN, our normal um, number of nurses that we'd have open vacancies for would be the kind of 200 to 300. And during this pandemic, we saw that raw double or more to six or 700 nursing positions. And how do we support our, both our system and society around us? And so many were looking to healthcare as uh, what are the answers? What should we do? We'd like some certainty. I want to go back to that piece because I, I know we, we operated about 60, 60 
uh, open forums during the last year alone, uh, around uh, last two years rather, around COVID with our staff, our, the 30,000 people who make up the uh, Team UHN. And it was really pretty remarkable. All of us wanted much more certainty than any of us could have. And, you know, thinking back to those early days, um, you know, thinking about, do we need a mask? No, we don't need masks. Do we need N95s? No, N95s were overkill. Um, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, this was much more about a supply chain challenge. So if we gave everyone who might want N95 masks, as an example, we simply wouldn't have had enough N95 masks for those who might have to do aerosolizing procedures. And again, what we knew in the science at that time was very different than what we know now. People on our open forums were expecting answers in real time. And I think one of our greatest confusions was science changed, advice changed, medical officers of health changed, changed uh, positions. Uh, again, at a time when people feeling out of control really wanted certainty. There was also, I think, confusion over the rules and who makes the rules. And, um, you know, always thinking a little bit about should, if one of us, any of, any of you from the great organizations you're with, made a decision to go farther than the standard recommended by the medical officers of health or the province you're in or the, the government of Canada, you name it, were you basically setting a new floor? And there was great concern about one of us, particularly large players, in a sense, really setting public policy without government moving along. I know it didn't feel this way at the time, and it's terribly un-Canadian to say this, but truly everyone did the very best they could with what they had. And um, I think when we look at the data, as struggling as it's been, we've done very well in Canada. When we look at the deaths, not, notwithstanding the, the tragic um, consequences we saw in round one of long-term care, but Canada and Ontario have fared very, very well during this pandemic. Of course, we'd like to have fared better. A few observations for, for me. Um, one, I was really, really impressed at the political and public service level. In the early waves, the, there was no politics in my experience. And, and because of the role UHN played, certainly not because of me per se, but I had the good fortune to talk to senior decision makers at every level of government. And consistently, the, what the, the question I got from Mayor Tory, um, Premier Ford, Minister uh, and Deputy Premier Elliott, and the Prime Minister and the Deputy Prime Minister was, what do you need? What can we do? What do you need us to move out of the way? And it was, I don't think I've ever seen the system move so well, so apolitically, and so uh, cohesively. You know, did we have perfect answers? No. Were there disagreements among people within the various levels of the public service and political parties? Absolutely. But when I when I compare that to jurisdictions around the world, uh, again, really exceptional collaboration, incredibly dedicated staff at every level. So from our partners in Ontario, at Ontario Health and Ministry, to our partners across the care system, home care, long term care, you name it. Um, and of course, the real frustration was in the early days, the supply chain that we just did not have access to. And interestingly, for a very advanced healthcare system, it wasn't, we, we did worry and struggle and, and have a lot of angst about things like ventilators and critical care equipment, but did really well with that. A, a shout out for in Ontario to Andrew Baker, who was our, our commander on that. But it came down to pretty simple stuff masks, gowns, gloves, 
um, clearly opportunities for fairly simple manufacturing. Um, again, I want to just shout out to, this is an example of my colleagues at UHN, but this happens across the system. And thank you to all of you. So many of you took part in this. Um, wave one in Ontario was all about long-term care. And I think it was across Canada. In retrospect, it was around the world, but others did not see the data as well revealed as we did. We've seen in New York that uh, the data that was once suppressed or, or perhaps not pushed out as aggressively as ours, very similar challenges for frail, vulnerable, immunocompromised people. But, you know, remarkable response from our colleagues across all our organizations who said, I want to help. And in our assessment, there was only two ways to help. We bring those patients to, to our institutions, which we know from science is a bad idea, changing the location, uh, changing the care provision, changing the physical environment uh, really contributes to negative outcomes for frail elderly people. Um, and unless they were acutely ill, then we, we should be able to manage them there. But remember, long-term care had as low as 20 to 0% of staff showing up. They were scared, they were sick, they had precarious work. And I wanna come back to that whole, uh, the, the economics of pandemics and, and marginalized populations. But I think this was really a moment uh, where we saw true systemness emerge. We'll go where you need us. Uh, one, of the, one of the good things at University Health Network, and I'm sure in many of your organizations, wow, we accelerated virtual care. So uh, when this started, we looked back and said, we have about 250 visits per week of virtual care. And at this point in time, we went to 10,000 visits. Our, our challenge now is not to go back to 250 a week. We also saw because of the worry about attending emergency rooms, as well as the capacity issue around um, primary care being quite unavailable. Our colleagues in the Emerge and our, our technology partners in, um, uh, at UHN uh, ended up standing up a virtual emergency department, as did our partners at um, Unity Health and Sunnybrook and Sitchins. And interestingly, 75%, 75% of the people our colleagues in the virtual emergency department saw didn't need to come to hospital. And I hope we don't lose either of these. Uh, a good crisis shouldn't be wasted for virtual care overall and for virtual emergency care when we know that you know, up, to, up to three quarters of the people can be well served at home. Um, my colleague, Sharan Isaac, did an absolutely spectacular job along with Phil Anthony from Michael Guerin Hospital and a whole team of people uh, across COVID care and working with team vaccine across um, all of Toronto. And the collaboration amongst our system was just amazing. I think for to COVID, if we thought about IMS tables for critical care, where we moved, you know, 2,000 people around the province virtually seamlessly. Now, I don't want to suggest that that wasn't incredibly stressful for families and, and for patients. And I know how scary it was to say, we're going to take your sick loved one and move them very far away from you. Even though the hospitals were closed to visitors, it makes patients feel different. And listening to our patients through this was something that I think we want to go back and say we could have done better at that and need to do better at that in future emergencies. Um, the other piece, uh, one of the great features of University Health Network is we're the only hospital in Canada that has embedded within its structure a health professional school, the Mitchell Institute for Education. 
and a shout out to all of my colleagues at Michener, especially Maria Tassoni and um, uh, her team, her whole team, Brian Hodges, around really standing up some amazing online learning, and whether that was for physicians who had not for a long time worked in, in uh, critical care to get some briefing to go and be an extender, for um, resident aid support workers in long-term care, which we know was dramatic, uh, again, really good education, which eventually became available around the world and was taken up by literally tens of thousands of people. And last but certainly not least, we saw dramatically improved integrated care pathways and, and digital orders that really allowed us to say this is the standard of care at our most challenging of times. What have we seen in later waves? Uh, again, looking at the good news um, first, and then the most challenging news that shouldn't be a surprise to us throughout human history. Um, the highest risk groups, those most marginalized, are the most disadvantaged in, in um, pandemics, and frankly, with health in general. But what we saw that was incredible, the incredible collaboration, uh, people coming together to make vaccines occur. Uh, I hope, again, not to waste the crisis. What are some of the other intractable problems in healthcare that if we brought the whole system together in the way we did around team vaccine, we could actually try and solve? And there are, I believe there are many. The inspiring generosity, both of our teams to each other, across our organizations and institutions, Unbelievable philanthropy, the, the generosity of our communities, um, and of course, the immense challenge. This was a pandemic of challenge on health human resources, especially in the latter three waves, the, the sixth of which we're in now. Obviously, none of us should leave this. If you go back through human history, this is a point proved over and over and over again to the Middle Ages to today, people with the least be it economic um, deprivation, food insecurity, always housing insecurity, uh, job, job uh, precarious work situations, they suffered most during this disease. And again, throughout human history, that's been our, our, our human experience. And obviously that calls us back to population health and social medicine, which I think all of us are more committed than ever to addressing. A few of the top challenges, I know we only have a 15 minutes or so left or 20 minutes total and then some time for questions. So I don't wanna talk at you for too long, but looking at the whole challenge in the, the domains listed here, people and culture, clinical activity, the environment of fiscal and physical constraint, the expectations of education with the new disease and then international competitiveness as it relates to ensuring that we are practicing and using the latest science, particularly during COVID and, and hopefully as we move into COVID recovery. But burnout, wellness, resiliency, our biggest challenge. So we all hear of the great uh, resignation. Fortunately, I believe according to HOOP in Ontario and, and other pension plans across the country, we have not yet seen significantly different numbers in retirement. That doesn't mean we won't. We have seen significantly different demands, expectations on mental health supports. And, and uh, clearly we need to really think about the resiliency and recovery of healthcare workers. Our greatest challenge in an underbuilt system is um, a rest and recovery strategy when we're concurrently saying we need to ramp up at University Health Network, there's over 5,000 delayed or canceled cases, uh, procedural and surgical cases. 
And how are we going to rest and build back resiliency and let people get, get back on track when we have that kind of backlog that clinicians and patients are legitimately pushing to get done? A lot of great work, I think, again, done uh, collectively on recovery across the Toronto GTA and I'm sure across the country. Um, fiscal constraints, not necessarily related to COVID, where I want to compliment government again. They made sure we had the funding resources we needed. But as you all know, having money available when there's no one to hire or no one who's done this work is a little bit of folly. A, a, a bed without staff is simply a, a bed. And so clearly we have to think about, with no change in the immediate supply of healthcare providers, who's going to do that work? And again, silver lining in this one may be it's an opportunity for us in places like Michener, the college system, the university system, and, and hospital-based training programs to really look at the whole concept of extenders, as many countries around the world have. And again, allowing our colleagues, our key colleagues in nursing particularly, but also in the allied therapies, to really do what only they can do because we are so under-resourced in people. And we really need to protect their quality of work life. So I, I believe that the, the environment will open the door to um, investments in education and uh, an opportunity to look at the kind of flow and care. I also hope for our most precarious workers in healthcare, mostly PSWs, who again, I wanna recognize really kept the system afloat. So our PSW colleagues, be it in long-term care, home care or um, acute care, really kept the system afloat. And over and over and over again, we've heard in the PSW population, precarious work, not easily scheduled work, not predictable hours, not a great living, not a great wage, poor benefit programs in many occasions. I hope one of the great um, tragedies of this in long-term care really allows us to come back and create a true care path for our PSW colleagues that includes micro-credentialing and includes the opportunity to create a literally a much, much, much better job horizon. So as you, if you start as a PSW and are your exemplary at that, where might you wish to go? And in my mind, that needs to include those kind of extender categories that may end up being a, what I'll call surgical technologist working in the community for earlier discharge. So we can actually catch up on those massive numbers of surgeries and procedures that have been delayed. Um, I'm going to just run through three or four quick articles since I think uh, we're an academic health science center. We always want to go to the literature. And here's the good news. Uh, common sense, lived experience, and good research have, have uh, regressed entirely to the same outcomes. That people have really the, the research and the observations of frontline workers are very well insight. Um, clearly, we always say this one harder to do than, than not, but preparing for unexpected increases. You know, we all had a good IMS structure and code orange structures, but nothing like this one had ever happened before. And not going first gave us some advantage in terms of what to look for. Maintaining our line of sight, what's coming down, what kind of illness might be coming down the pipe. That having been said, we were, we in wave one prepared for critical care onslaught and got long-term care. And so again, even in the attenuation from the Southern hemisphere or from, from uh, Asia and Europe to North America, a significant change. Clearly the air has been a thing that we've heard over and over and over again. 
Is it an airborne disease? Yes, it is. Will there continue to be a debate about how much filtration and how what level of masking there will? Science will address that and should. Uh, clearly, this, regardless of where we go with COVID, emotional support for healthcare workers. Um, I think we all know that masking is not a sometimes or a short-term initiative. We're hearing debate in that, in that already around did we lift those, uh, those mandates too quickly. Um, a personal observation on this one, I don't feel the need for a medical officer of health or a government to tell me what to do to protect myself from this disease. I, I'm going to follow good public health measures, which is masking, uh, keeping social distance, not having large gatherings, when gathering, gathering outside, especially as we go into the better weather. Um, again, common sense will take us a long way. Uh, the technology, and I think one of the most important ingredients we saw out of this, where I feel that, that I personally failed, was keeping and connecting families, particularly of very ill people. And, you know, we did our best to get family members in for end-of-life care for really sick people. But it was such a scary time. I know we disappointed in long-term care and in acute care. Uh, the families who felt completely cut off, and we all know stories of of frail, vulnerable elderly people who, who really lost, <clears throat> excuse me, the will to live because their socialization with their beloved family members or friends was eradicated. It got better, but I think if we're again going to look at this one, we really need to go back and say in times like these, how do we ensure connection and connectedness can be maintained? The other uh, pause on this one that I think we, I hope you will all advocate for I'm a little embarrassed and frankly disappointed that we've seen a very thoughtful um, report put forward by the three-person panel on long-term care. And we saw, heard a lot about it both in the media and in our, our personal discussions. And since then, it seems to have gone under brick. And we can no longer pretend that quality of life and quality of care and funding of long-term care is a secret. It's not a secret, it's well known. We need radical transformation in this environment, and we collectively need to make sure this one doesn't just get left on the shelf, but actually implemented and demand that investment. Frail, vulnerable people living with low quality of life and long-term care is not acceptable in a rich country like this one. Um, also looking at the supply and supply chain issue, we've talked about a ton. Um, the, we, we did some great work, I think, on eradicating unnecessary work. Again, I hope we'll do that. And the speed of decision-making, I can feel already we're drifting back to those good old days of, uh, of internal bureaucracy in our own organizations, as well as bureaucracy with our funders, our partners, our, our agencies. And we really need to say, how could we do that so quickly in COVID and so slowly now? And again, the most uh, important issue to me, again, for us to recall is racial and ethnic disparity. We all saw this week in the media that the uh, variation in the private school system re receiving rapid tests versus the broader uh, ethnic communities, particularly in underprivileged areas. Another example of where population health was not implemented. And again, I, if you only take one thing out of today's discussion, go back and look at the, those who have been deprived, they're, they're consistently deprived, and how will we address that? Again, um, 
I, I won't uh, dwell on this one, but hardware and software issues, a great study out of Quebec, really looking, I think, at two things on the, the quote unquote software governance and trust. And at the end of the day, uh, trust, including trust of our colleagues within our own organization, particularly when we couldn't give them the answers we'd hoped. Um, and I'll leave you to have a look at the other um, important findings of this study. Next one, a study, I believe, from the Boston Consulting Group. I don't think you're going to, again, great to see the consistency, opportunities for dig digital care, opportunities for care modeling and resource distribution, looking at patients and outcome, and I would say overall, elimination of low value added work. Uh, again, opportunities for governance and policy reform and data and analytics. We saw over and over and over again, the benefit that that offered us, what, be that moving people around the system, be that looking at our supply chain, be that looking at who is most ill in our ICUs over and over. Just give you an example where we didn't do so well at UHN, perhaps many of you did well. Our antiquated human resource information system really made some of the stuff, particularly in getting our employees vaccinated and being able to follow them into individually, less than adequate. And one of the learnings or opportunities for me out of this is working with government to recognize that cyber infrastructure and physical infrastructure are one and the same. We can no longer pretend that cyber infrastructure isn't just as relevant or perhaps more in some cases as our physical infrastructure in healthcare facilities. Uh, from my old home and haunt, McMaster, some great work done at the um, McMaster Health Forum. Again, very consistent literature, all regressing to the same messages, protecting the vulnerable, be, ensuring patients and families are at the table and we're addressing their concerns, understanding the value and limits of digital care, looking at centralized leadership. This was an IMS environment. How do you make in what is normally a very egalitarian system around decision-making and leadership and often very centralized on individual institutions. It was hard for us to get to know we're gonna make a decision that's for the better of the many as it relates to institutional care. Um, facilitating uh, integrated care, I think some really good work on this one at McMaster, requiring activities at multiple levels, at funder levels. Uh, particularly at the frontline level, at the level of the new care team that's been forming. And then, of course, looking at the incentive structure that allows us to do these things and not punish but reward people for innovation. Um, recently, Robin Doolittle, in my opinion, put a very thoughtful article and interviewed a lot of people. Um, and again, I think her work really kicked the door open for us to say, well, what could we do? What can we learn? These, this was a tweet that I sent out, but many, many, many people sent out very similar things. And I, I won't go through all 12, but just reinforce a number of themes in this incentive alignment. You know, what we have the system we incent. We all believe we could get better value for the massive investment that we make in healthcare across Canada. Uh, the opportunity for universal access and private capital can coexist without compromising the Canada Health Act. The profound opportunity for scope of practice reviews and extenders can actually be reconciled. It's essential to be, or we're simply going to burn out those at the higher levels of care. Um, we really do need to have integrated fund holders if we're going to offer integrated care. And that includes significant and consistent clinical leadership across the care, the care experience. 
no question about it, we are at a mental health and burnout crisis levels. Um, you know, I, I'm always intrigued when I read, we need more money here and we need more money there and we need more money in every other sector. And often positioned as at the expense of or rather than somewhere else. And what this proved to me, we need investment, smart investment. That doesn't mean there can't be concurrent savings, but we need smart primary care. We need smart investment in long-term care. We need smart investment in hospital capacity. We need smart investment in home care. We really need to re-examine using a kind of choosing wisely lens. Uh, what is high value care and how can we eradicate low value care that may ch check the box on us getting paid, but isn't what our patients need and doesn't allow us to work the scope of practice. I think few of us believe that digital health, AI, big data is a profound enabler of the future. We clearly need profound and sustained action on elder care, and I hope each of you will be an advocate for that. And uh, no one went to work every day during this pandemic to do anything but try to offer a great experience. It was stressful. We didn't hit the mark every time. That would be the norm across the world, not unique to Canada. So thanks to Robin for putting out this great article. Um, I think one of the things that most impressed me, I hope it impressed you, was how quickly we can change. Right? So a place like University Health Network, I thought, wow, gearing down when we said we're going to st virtually stop activity, elective activity. I thought it would be a very slow grind year by year from sixth to fifth to fourth to third. We literally turned off UHN overnight. And I want to thank all of my colleagues in, in management and the front line and direct clinical care, our physician leaders and frontline physicians. So we can do these things quickly. Um, clearly, we have to look at HHR. We've, we've talked about that. And we really do have to look at how will we, we can't wait five years to train a, a, a nurse with exemplary critical care skills or people who could do advanced things like ACLS or ECMO. A little bit of disappointment for me, and again, no one's fault, totally understandable based on the structure we have. The Public Health Agency of Canada, the Ontario Ministry of Health or, or Medical Officers of Health, the local public health units, it's a strange structure, right? And if I were just gonna be slightly constructively critical, I would say I'd love to see the Public Health Agency of Canada during the next pandemic challenge the provinces who are left without implementation. This is what the very best practice around the world is in protecting long-term care, in protecting schools and children, in protecting healthcare workers. Instead, we often got a minimum standard, sort of a loose association of what can we all agree upon and you know what would be small p politically saleable. I hope that we empower the Public Health Agency of Canada and the Government of Canada to challenge us, the provinces, and the public health units to truly step up to what best in the world looks like in each of these at-risk populations, beginning with those most at-risk. Uh, we, need, we need, I think, uh, not to lose this opportunity, a true incident management structure. And while we put lots of IMS names on things, they weren't necessarily true management structures. And I think working with political leaders, the time has come for us to come back and consider that. Equity, diversity, and inclusion has to be a central lens in, and strategy in every pandemic. And uh, we got to that. We certainly got there in, in the fullness of time, but we sure didn't start there. And you know, this is our opportunity to really go back and I think think about what that means in our most 
disadvantaged populations. We need some real digital health solutions. And, and I don't mean by that, that a telephone call equals digital health. I do mean by that, I'm just gonna brag for a second about a colleague at UHN, things like the um, congestive heart failure work that Dr. Heather Ross has done at University Health Network on true digital congestive heart failure with downloadable weigh scales and downloadable blood pressure cuffs and real-time feedback from, from experts on changing your medication that take exacerbations from many admissions a year to zero admissions a year. Again, I call that high value work. Um, the stratification of care sites, clearly we're seeing over and over, where should we do this work? And you know, again, early in the pandemic, we talked about long-term care. Should we move those patients elsewhere? No, we shouldn't. Uh, it's not good for the patient and we're gonna overwhelm acute care and we don't know what's coming in, but who, how, and where do we deliver care? And how do we actually stratify those sites to the appropriate level of care? We saw some amazing things happen in long-term care with both digital health and physical presence. That should not be an exception. It shouldn't happen just during, during COVID. Like, why can't we do virtual rounding? Why can't we do virtual consultation? Why can't we do um, uh, uh, diagnostics and therapeutics? We can. Um, obviously, we need to think about how we could do that differently and, and should. Uh, the healthcare facilities, you, you'll know if you follow Twitter, there remains a raging and polarizing debate uh, on the airborne strategy. And, you know, I think few, no one would say that there is not an airborne component to this. But what that means in terms of masking or filtration, I think we need to bring a consensus conference together that really allows us to say this is the standard in Canada for new builds, not in the new builds that might go in in the future, but even in considering retrofit as we go back to that. This is not the last we will see of airborne-related pandemic disease. I've talked about this over and over, but targeting the elimination of low-value care, if each of us left here today, and said, we are committed as each organization participating in implementing choosing wisely, in not restarting low value work, in advocating for um, methodologies and remuneration that doesn't require physicians to do things that much less expensive people could do as well or better and not uh, end up punishing the physician economically. And last but certainly not least, where I'll end where I started true payer reform, which is really looking at paying for results, paying for outcomes, and paying for a, satisfa a satisfactory experience, both for the consumer and for the provider. If payer reform doesn't consider improving the quality of work life of providers, we will not have outstanding care for consumers. So one minute over, I apologize. Um, thank you for the opportunity to share this. Thanks to Matt and the sponsors of today's event. I guess we have about 10 minutes, Matt. I'll turn it back to you in case you want me to do anything else or ask, answer any questions. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, we have we we have a few questions. I can just kind of quickly go over them with you. Off the bat, uh, they were wondering whether or not you may be able to speak to what happened to research projects and teams and research leaders during COVID. What was the impact on their work? Yeah, interestingly, at University Health Network, our, our research volume and investment actually went up but it went up in the areas of um, uh, COVID-related research, right? So there was a lot of money out there that said, help us discover more. And the great thing about science and the remarkable thing about scientists, when people hold money out, uh, particularly for basic science and discovery science, remarkable people will flock to it because their question can contribute to it. 
Remember, mRNA vaccines have been under development for a long time, mostly looking at oncology. And so the corollary benefit of all we've learned from mRNA vaccines during this, this um, terrible pandemic is likely to radically and rapidly benefit oncology patients. Uh, I also want to thank the Government of Canada. They made sure that in the early waves, some of the lost research activity was something that they supported in the large research centers. And that was essential because, you know, as you know, losing technicians, technologists, our faculty members are fairly uh, solid and, and not going to leave the research paradigm. But if those technicians, technologists, research assistants couldn't be kept in place, all of whom are very unique, uh, have very unique skills and abilities, we'd have decimated the research infrastructure of this country. What we didn't do so well, unfortunately, was keep up our enrollment in clinical trials. And obviously, we need to get back to that as quickly and as soon as possible. Um, with uh, respect to HHR um, challenges uh, the system is facing and will continue to face over the next few years, uh, do you feel it is feasible for the system to recalibrate some of the qualifications of the hospital roles um, that do not provide direct patient care? I do, absolutely. So I think if you look in other jurisdictions, including the United States, um, it's a bit like the, uh, you know, 1964, the Burlington Nurse Practitioner Study, 62 or 64, was studied. It took us 20 or 30 years to move from evidence that proved that nurse practitioners were outstanding providers of primary care to the ability to implement that. And I would suggest that that in large part was because of supply, right? Both supply of family physicians, we had many, many more of them in those days per thousand population. I think now we are in such serious challenge that we'll see less resistance from the, what I'll call the, the regulated health professions. They need help. There simply aren't enough of them to do the work. And I think over and over and over again, we've seen um, many opportunities for other care environments to do more. I just saw a great point pop up on the screen. Pharmacies, excellent example, right? Like what more can our pharmacy colleagues do uh, shout out to Emily Musing, one of my great colleagues at UHN. Like, Emily managed to coordinate with the best of skill the um, remarkable uh, vaccine strategy for four or five hospitals and innumerable numbers of patient-based clinics. So we really need to look and say, who can do this work? And we also need to say, particularly with a debt load for our nation, larger than any, at any time since World War II, that we will figure out ways to make this grow less rapidly in expense. So I'm not suggesting that we're gonna have a cheaper system. I'm hoping our cost of operating healthcare, which before COVID was 42 cents of every Ontario tax dollar, during COVID over 50 cents of every tax dollar, and anxiety about turning the system back, how do we fund this? And, and we really do have to think about What's the sustainable funding model? Because as you and I know, if we're really going to move to a population health and prevention lens, we can't spend everything on treatment after you're already ill. We have to strike that more, more appropriate balance. And that may mean looking at new revenue streams. So uh, speaking of uh, vaccine strategies, um, on a more of a, the, the broader global inequities, are you able to comment on resources and the impact that it may have had on all countries? Um, absolutely. You know what I think, sadly, human nature is um, goes to in a, in a very frightening time with a very frightening disease. 
get me my get me protected and then we can think about equity for other people um you know i think that is human nature unfortunately uh, we've seen that throughout human history i think we also realized that was not 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 always the right strategy when it came to the international protection and if we ever proved anything that there is that we are but one petri dish uh, literally the world is one petri dish in a day before we could identify new variants it was everywhere so clearly vaccinating the world or whatever the intervention uh, looking around the world has to be a strategy that we increasingly embrace think um, whether that's through who or other organizations but clearly leaving the less economically uh, strong powers if we're going to leave borders open which we are then i don't believe that we can prevent the, the transmission of disease without being equally attentive to our lower income partners and in uh, develop the developing world it's hard right it's hard when people are scared and politicians are you know being beaten up for saying look we're going to send a portion of our of our supply to um a, a less developed part of the world when not every canadian or ontarian has what they want but in the fullness of time i think one of the outcomes of this discussion has to be how do we ramp up that supply chain in all of those countries so that it can be made made possible with regards to vaccine mandates internally um are you able to discuss your own concerns and support for your vaccine mandate as well as your boards Yeah so as you know uh, University Health Network made a decision that um, having some of Canada's sickest people in our organ transplant programs in our um, Princess Margaret oncology programs in our neuro programs you name it across all of our sites in our acute rehabilitation programs um you had to be vaccinated so i would say go back to your values uh, we're a science based organization we're the larger largest producer of science in the country uh with 500 million dollars a year in scientific investment it didn't make any sense from a values perspective for us not to expect people to be vaccinated secondly and I'll be be honest I don't I don't very often get to um say the prime minister um shamed me into this one not personally but as I heard Mr Trudeau say no one's going to be able to get on a plane go on a federally regulated boat or go in a federal building unless they're vaccinated in order to protect people and then i thought like you could go into toronto general or toronto western or toronto rehab or or princess margaret and not be vaccinated that just doesn't ring true to our values and so i deeply regret that about 150 team uhn colleagues chose to leave the organization over our mandatory vaccine statement but and while i regret they departed i hope all of them get vaccinated and come back that having been said i don't for a minute think our board or our management team or our mac or our pac unanimous uh, support for mandatory vaccination to protect our patients and to protect each other and our principal value at uhn like many of the organizations on the line the needs of patients come first i cannot tell you the number of patients who particularly with serious illness called up or sent an email or talked to their unit manager I want to be sure that whoever's looking after me is vaccinated. I don't want an unvaccinated healthcare worker looking after me because I'm on immunosuppressant drugs or I'm receiving a therapy that puts me at risk. So I I believe that is and should continue to be the standard that we offer. Thank you. Um Dr. Smith, we are out of time. 
Uh, I wanted to say thank you. Have a fantastic day and we will see everybody soon. Bye-bye.